Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Our series on power to the people has covered energy supply, people power in terms of politics and protest. But today we're tackling one of the hardest subjects of all in the power discussion. Just how much are we prepared to sacrifice to ensure clean, green energy into the future? What is the price of power on land and at sea? What do some of the proposed renewable energy projects mean for our marine ecosystem? To help me through this tricky conversation, I'm joined by two expert guests, Joan Edwards, who's Director of Policy and Public Affairs at the Wildlife Trusts. Joan is a marine biologist by profession and has been with the Wildlife Trusts for many years. Joan, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi. And I'm delighted to welcome back friend of the podcast, Dr. Tom Appleby, Chief Legal Affairs Advisor to the UK-based ocean conservation charity, the Blue Marine Foundation. Tom, good to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. So, renewables prove to be much cheaper on every level than other forms of power generation, but are we really hiding the true costs in terms of the cost for nature, and particularly the impact on marine environment, because so many at the moment are offshore? I wonder if we should start perhaps by having a look at what's happening in the marine environment generally in terms of biodiversity. I mean, how healthy are the waters around the UK and beyond, Joan, in terms of our biodiversity and health? Well, unfortunately, just as on land, nature is declining in the UK. Um, You know, we've seen crashes of um, insects on land, but at sea, we've seen, you know, common skate is not common anymore. It's gone. Um, You know, you know, we're seeing in some ways a weakened environment at the moment is, is possibly the reason that avian flu is around with, with seabirds. And then, of course, we're now starting to hear that seals may be getting distemper. And, you know, the, these are natural viruses, but often they tend to take over or be, become a pandemic because the system is weakened. And, we, you know, we're putting an awful lot of pressure onto the marine environment at the moment. And now we're talking about putting lots and lots of offshore wind farms all around the UK, and often the case, they're all actually on marine protected areas. These are areas we're supposed to be protecting, and yet we're putting um, wind farms on them. And you have to think about, I think sometimes people think a wind farm is, you know, just a pylon into the seabed and, you know, not much. But you have to remember between every array, every turbine, there is a cable. And then there are many cables that come from the, the wind farm onto shore. And all of those cables are trenched. So they dig a trench in the, in the seabed. Um, they put the cable in and then they actually put rock armoring on the top so the fishermen can't dredge them up. So they're actually damaging the, a very large amount of the marine environment. And you have to remember that marine environment is a blue carbon store. So we are destroying, you know, blue carbon as, as these things are being built. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? We're destroying a blue carbon store in order to produce a a low carbon energy source. Yeah, we you know, what we say is, you know, we're not against renewables, but we have two crises, a nature crisis and a climate crisis. And you have to fight them both at the same time, not one or the other. Um, and the marine environment is so important in terms of the climate. Um, the plankton, so these are the very tiny animals and plants that live on the surface of the sea, they absorb carbon dioxide. Um, they're really important. Um, and what happens if any plant, fish or any other animal in the sea when they die they tend to fall down to the bottom of the seabed and their animals actually fix that that carbon that's in those bodies into the seabed so it's really important that we have a healthy marine environment. Tom 
at Blue Marine, you worked hard to protect the Dogger Bank, didn't you? And, it, and it's been one of the successes, one of the few successes of Brexit, but one of the recent successes out in marine protection areas in general. Is it therefore undoing all that good work by allowing a huge wind farm to be built on, on the Dogger Bank? Uh, it's, a, it's a really good question. I mean, on the one hand, you've got, um, we did, that is, the wind, farm is, wind farms to some extent are displacing commercial fishing activity and particularly bottom trawling. And then you've got to think, you know, which is, is it less worse? I mean, I'm not sure of the answer of that. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it, it may be that by by putting that infrastructure in place, that you're actually, to some degree, protecting um, from 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 fishing activity. Now, it, it, you know, we the Dogger Bank was protected for conservation reasons, but I'm sure that some of the politics behind that was they thought, oh, you know, that means you've got rid of all that fishing effort. Um, and because national infrastructure projects like energy projects are imperative reasons of overriding public interest, they, they can displace marine conservation measures as long as they pay environmental compensation for what they do to the feature. Um, so, you know, traditionally on these things, what we've done is measures have been put in to protect birds I'm not sure where we are with the dogger in terms of damage to displaced to, to the habitat. We've not really looked into that to some degree because I think we were sort of our primary concern because that was a project that started kind of 10 years ago was was to protect it from the fishing. And now we've sort of woken up in a way to thinking, OK, well, what's the next thing that we do? Because each one of these things takes enormous amount of conservation resource. So at least you could say on that they're doing this in the public interest if you're looking at it from a political point of view, whereas I'm not sure you can argue that, that commercial fishing is in the, in the public interest in the way that it was. So there is that crumb of comfort. And there is this potential thing that it's less bad than what was there. But then the other side of this, as well as that, I'm not sure we when you do some massive intervention like that, you can predict to some degree what, what it's going to do. You can't predict everything, and there may be other negatives that come out of it that, that we're not aware of. You know what happens to the the currents when you put these this amount of infrastructure in, and what does that do in terms of siltation? To um, what what happens to with the magnetic fields? How much noise these things constantly generate, and its impact on the environment? To some extent, these are known, and to some extent, they aren't. So it's a yeah, it's a significant intrusion, and and history tells us that on the whole. <laughs> we sort of often accentuate the positives as far as the environment is concerned and miss out some of the negatives. Yeah. You, you talk there about environmental compensation. I can understand there'd be compensation for a fisherman, say, losing their, um, their, their, their right to fish and their, potentially their livelihood. There's no real compensation for the environment itself, though, is there? I mean, you know, we can't, we can't compensate the, 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 the skate who are no longer there. No, but what you can do, where habitats are destroyed, uh, you can offset the damage to that habitat by replacing it somewhere else. By, 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 you know, you've got destroyed salt marsh, you replace it with more salt marsh. It becomes complicated on things like this because, you know, the, the number of issues arise. You may simply not be able to replace like for like because that's not feasible. Um, you're then into, well, how do you replace, how do you compensate in terms of environmental, you know, comp environmental compensation, which there is a requirement for on this, uh, how do you do that where you might have to compensate using 
something else? I mean, this is a, this is a really fraught question, and one we uh, probably is worth discussing actually. So, it, the rules are you should do like for like compensation, but two years ago. Um, it was another. It wasn't um, a wind farm on Dogger, but it was on another marine protected area, uh, Hornsey, um, in the North Sea. Bays decided not to do compensation, so they gave planning permission for um, a wind farm and said, "No, you don't need to do compensation." We had to actually had to go to court over this because they were breaking the habitats regulations. So they are now doing compensation, but their compensation is not fit for purpose. So Hornsey Three, the compensation package basically says they're going to remove fishing debris from the marine protected area. That's not like for like. Yeah, it's just it's just silly. Um and uh, they should be doing that anyway. Well yeah and the, uh, the 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 latest package of compensation is they're going to remove the debris left by the oil oil and gas industry. So that you know they're they're removing stuff that should have been removed in the first place. You know, this is the polluter pays principle. You know, if you leave stuff on the seabed, you should remove it. But at the moment, Bayes and DEFRA are allowing um, you know, really bad compensation packages to go forward by actually very high profit making companies. You know, I was in a meeting last week with the Crown Estates, and we we worked out that this this industry is probably at the moment worth 15 billion pounds a year so 15 billion 15 billion so it's massive and you also have to think about the fact that we're not just producing energy for us the idea is all these wind farms in the north sea particularly will start to produce wind um wind energy um for actually the the continent so we'll be selling our energy um across across to France and to Germany, et cetera. So it's a multi-billion industry, and yet they can't do right, the right type of compensation. Yeah, I, I, and add to which many of the um, developers are themselves um, non-UK companies. So, you know, uh, Scottish Power Renewables is actually owned by the, by the Spanish. So I think there's a perception that it's the, the UK is benefiting financially because it's UK jobs and UK industry. But I think that's a perception we could unpick to some degree. Tom, you wanted to come back on that. Yeah, I think I think that's partly because when you look at it from the outside, from the NGO perspective, the compensation package is part of the enormous package of stuff that you have to put through to, to understand the engineering, engineering operations that are going on. And we were looking at Sizewell in particular. It's It's just vast, you know, that the, and and in order to understand how the whole thing fits together, you need to understand the power station, um, and then you've got a sort of two three week long hearing in that case that you'd have to go through probably longer actually to go through in several months worth of work, and the conservation bits will be here and there tacked away in in amongst the kind of wall of information you're getting, and what we found is that that is too resource heavy for us to engage with properly. Um, because I think there probably is a will inside these industries to do it properly, but I I think that there's something missing there in terms of you know making a process where you can actually get in at the right moment to make sure proper conservation measures to, uh, uh, are put into the process. And this is what we've been doing with Hinkley Point C nuclear power station, where um, there's complicated consenting process, but but we have now got. EDF to agree just yesterday, actually, that they're going to have to pay environmental compensation for uh, part part of their water input and discharge things, which are vast. Um, 
and, and will have a, you know, a bound to have a negative impact on the seven estuary SAC, special area of conservation. Um, and, and now we're going to have to move together as a collection of concerned local groups to engage with the EDF to make sure the right things are taken into consideration. Because if you just leave it up to the government bodies that are involved in this, which is, is, is fine, but they're just their heart isn't in it and they don't necessarily know know what's possible and they don't necessarily have all the information and they're sort of browbeaten inside the government agencies and something less than optimal comes out of the process. So there's something about how we engage with these compensation mechanisms and make sure they actually deliver improvements, actually, I think, um, to, 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 to the environment when they go through. And there is an opportunity to do that, but it's really difficult and really technical. Yeah, and, and I think that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, I think what you're both highlighting is this is these are big multi-million, multi-billion pound projects. They're really technical. The cards, if you like, are stacked against um smaller local NGOs or local protection associations or even large NGOs like the Wildlife Trust, in that there's so much information. It's such a lengthy process. It's so um it's so detailed. Um but if you just unpick some of this and say, okay, a huge impact from a nuclear power station, which will have a you know an impact on the on the waters around the um, around the estuary, as you've said, there'll be you know lots more saline being pumped in. I think you indicated that there's uh, blue marine. There's an impact on fish to do with noise. The same will be happening um, around Sizewell in terms of the desalination. Um, and then you, your point, I think, Jane, about you know these these big offshore wind farms are actually going to ge- generate so much energy we'll be shipping it out to the to the continent which of course will then cause an enormous impact in terms of onshoring the power plants associated with doing that and building the interconnectors and you know all of those link cables and things i mean they are you know looked at like that from a layperson's point of view thinking hang on a minute is any of this worth it is there a better different way of doing this would it be more sensible for us to have onshore wind? Would it be more sensible for us to have small, local, scaled um, power projects that don't have such an enormous detrimental impact on the environment and don't make it difficult, make it so difficult for us to engage in the conversation in the first place? Well, I think one of the problems is we don't have an energy policy in this country. Um, at the moment, it's, you know, we all do it. We switch on our, our, our central heating the only thing that's stopping us at the moment is the cost of living crises but if this was two years ago where to be honest energy is quite cheap we don't think about how much energy we're using you know this is a really good lesson actually this winter but I do understand it's going to cause a lot of hardship to people but we need an energy policy that looks at firstly energy efficiency you know we should we should all have heat pumps in our our homes we need to retrofit possibly 35% of the housing in this country, because I know I'm sitting in a house here, I'm absolutely freezing, but I'm in an old house. I don't have insulation. Um, and I have very old windows. You know, I, I need to get double glazing. The government should be giving grants so that we actually all use less energy. And then, as you say, we need a mix of um, types of energy um, production. So at the moment, the government in some ways is putting its eggs all in one basket. It's all offshore wind or a couple of nuclear power stations. Whereas you say onshore wind, and we did hear yesterday that Rashi Sunak, the prime minister, has 
turned around and has agreed now we can have onshore wind. The, 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 the most important thing, well, there's two things, really. The greenest energy is the energy you don't use. And then the cheapest energy is the energy that you produce as close as possible to people's homes. Um, because, the you know, the energy that's coming from Dogger Bank that's got to come out, come out and then into the coast, that's going to cost more and more money to the consumer. And so we need to be demanding, we need a proper energy policy, we need to look at energy efficiency, and then we need to make sure that it's local energy production and small mm. small projects that, that the communities can work with. Mm. Mm, I, I would I would absolutely agree with you, and 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 we will be talking to Sally Bunce, who's a um, a seal conservation officer up in the Teesside, about the impacts of, of Dogger and the onshoring, the energy as well. I mean, I, I just I want to go back to this kind of the, the the marine environment though, because I think this is the bit that people probably don't know as much about, and are probably is very concerned about. We can all have an opinion about whether nuclear is good or bad, and um, listeners to the pod probably clearly know what my opinion is. And we can all have an opinion about whether or not we need onshore or offshore. But but what can we do to try and mitigate the impact of these? I mean, Tom, you've talked about environmental compensation, but I'm struggling with the idea of how we actually make sure we've restored this incredibly fragile ecosystem that's at threat here. And it isn't just a threat from an offshore wind um, plant, is it? It's a threat from lots and lots of other things. I mean, you Joan, you mentioned the virus that's that's going to be affecting the st- seals, the distemper. So what can we do to either slow down some of these assaults or mitigate the impact of these assaults? Because our marine ecosystem is incredibly fragile and incredibly precious. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting question. One thing is that because the marine environment around the UK has been so badly battered <laughs> and the foreshore has been a lot of the foreshore has been is you know been artificially changed. Actually, you've got an opportunity there um, because you're starting from quite a low base. So if you take something like the Severn Estuary and you drive up it, it's largely bunded pretty close to to the shoreline. Now we've got which what is gives bunded? us quite, what is bunded. It means mean? it's it, it means it's got um it's got kind of uh, defence works. Oh, know, okay, like big concrete. Works. Yeah. But yeah, big concrete or big big mounded defence yeah. works um, up at that down it now. Now, if if you look in some places, that's defending where people live. In in other places, it's defending pretty unproductive farmland. Um, but the intertidal range in particular is amazingly productive. Uh, it's you know r- the restoration of salt marsh and and things like that, uh, which you could do over over quite a substantial area in in, in certainly in the seven. Um, that 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 really does that really would kickstart biodiversity and actually on the carbon front salt marsh is an incredibly good carbon sink too so so the you know there, there are real opportunities out there <laughs> and we we i'm part of the projects we're doing it trying to quantify where they are and, and, and how to get them through um and that's kind of on, the, on an engineering scope but but likewise you know with with the other activities that we do in reducing the impact of those, um, we can potentially offset the damage that we're going to cause. But but some of the, the projects out there, things like, you know, sticking a barrage right the way across the Severn, I mean, that would have massive consequence. Um, and and, 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 and I, I think some of the sort of bigger, wackier proposals are just too, too big for us to be able to, 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 be able to do that kind of offsetting arrangement with. Mm. 
Joan, you're looking slightly sceptical, if I may say so. I mean, what do you think from the Wildlife Trust point of view? What what can we do about mitigating some of these impacts? And and what should we do, be doing about halting this species decline? I mean, what would be, I mean, I, I completely understand get your point earlier about you know proper energy policy everybody who's appeared on the podcast in the series has talked about the need for a joined up strategic energy policy from the government um i'm not holding my breath but we need one of those but what about some of the more you know practical things or the activist things that we could do to try and restore our environment the government really needs to do is decide what it wants from the marine environment you know what does uk plc want from our marine environment and then it needs to plan and we need to plan backwards. We need to we need to be thinking about what will our marine environment or what do we want our marine environment to look like in 25 years time and then back cast and work out how we're going to reach it. Um, because at the moment, I was talking to colleagues this morning um, where Scottish government is is planning a huge amount of wind farms in Scottish waters. And then their, their plan is to bring cables down from Scotland to England to bring the electricity in there. But at the same time, the, our government, the English government, Westminster, are putting offshore wind farms off our shores and they will need to cables coming across. You can't have a cable crossing a cable. It's not possible um, because of the, the laws of electricity. So we need to plan this properly. And we also need to invest money into actually reducing the damage that the wind farms are actually creating. So one of the things, for example, um, when they first put in um, a turbine into the seabed, they do really old-fashioned piling. So you've all heard it when you've heard a garage being built or a um, supermarket, you hear that bang, bang, bang. Well, that's what they do um, at the moment with the turbines. Unfortunately, um, whales and dolphins, particularly porpoises, do not like that noise. Um, and the problem with particularly the porpoise is a very common small um, dolphin. Um, there's lots and lots of them in the North Sea, um, but they're like little eating machines. Um, they're a bit like a shrew. Um, they're small. They they swim around and they eat, 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 eat. Um, the, if you disturb them with these, these banging noises, they will stop eating. Um, they can't just go and travel to somewhere else because they are like little eating machines. If you make them travel somewhere else, they'll probably starve or they will stop reproducing or they'll end up with some sort of disease or virus. Um, it's because we're using old engineering. You know, the, the, the industry needs to be thinking about how does it reduce its noise when it's putting the pylons into the seabed. And then the government really needs to think seriously about planning that, that marine space because at the moment we're running out of space. And I think the first thing that we could do is stop putting um, turbines into marine protected areas. You know, I spent mm. 30 years of my life trying to get marine protected areas um, and, you know, as Tom says, the government at last is starting to remove fishing pressure from these areas and at the same time allowing turbines to be built. It doesn't seem very fair on the fishing industry, really. You know, they're not allowed to go there, but another industry can. Um, mm. So you would say no turbines on Dogger? No, there shouldn't be any at all. No, no. And, 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 and uh, you know, your point about, you know, the poor voices. I mean, we see endless, you know, just from a really kind of layperson's point of view, we see endless reports when a dolphin or a porpoise is spotted off the coast and people flock down to the, the, the seashore and they watch it and they take photographs and, you know, they give it names and they adopt it. I mean, we love our marine um, uh, environment. We love our marine animals and mammals and fish. So why are we actively trying to destroy them 
it's I mean it's crazy it makes no sense does it it, it really? doesn't and you know I, I'm very fortunate I live by the seaside and you know I did spend most of the weekend staring out for the humpback whales that we know we've got off Plymouth at the moment um and I I know when I've been out on a boat and I've seen dolphins I get that really weird feeling of wow and it makes me happy I don't know why because I'm not a you know I'm not a I am very passionate about my job but you know I'm I'm technical I do legal stuff and that side of things but it makes me feel good and you know if you talk to people you know they love they talk about their holidays when they were young by the seaside playing playing in the sea on the beaches we all love it and yet for some reason successive governments have not invested in its recovery um and we are seeing you know the 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 wrecks of sea animals that we've seen off the north sea coast in the last year is it's horrendous and yet in some ways, the government has been sort of t- trying to, you know, hide it, to be honest. Um, it's only the last couple of weeks that a c- committee of MPs have actually said that they're going to set up an independent inquiry because they do not believe the deaf scientists. Um, Are you talking about Teesside yeah. here? You're talking about the impact on Teesside. Yeah. Um, it, 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 surely, I mean, you mentioned the Crown Estate earlier. I mean, maybe the Crown Estate has got to take a more active role in this. And we talked about this being a multi-billion pound industry. They stand to make a lot of money renting out the seabed to the turbine producers, don't they? Um, you know, are they taking a responsible um, role and active role in, in preserving the marine environment? They haven't done till now, but they are, as you say, they are the guardians of our marine environment. You know, they, they lease the seabed to all these developers. I think you might see a change over the next few months because I think the Crown Estate and I'm sure they don't mind me saying this, have suddenly woken up to the fact that their their estate is going to be destroyed if we don't do this properly. Mm. Um, and they mm. they have the power because they have to give licenses. Then One of the things they can do is put conditions on those licenses so there is proper compensation. Um, they, you know, recently they've been looking at leasing the area around um, North Devon and the Welsh coast. They have actually in the leasing round for offshore wind, and this will be floating wind, um, they've identified all the marine protected areas are no-go areas for offshore renewables, which is a massive step. So we are getting mm. somewhere with the Crown Estates. Still got a long way to go, though. Yeah, and I've been working with the Crown Estates Scotland, actually, as well. on They're more on aquaculture than, than the offshore wind um, situation, but... They've got quite an interesting bit in their constitution, as they have to best they have to operate in a way best calculated to further sustainable development. So um, that's going to be interesting to see how that that plays, because they're going to have to show at some stage what it is that they're doing to do that. It, it is, and that 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 is an active role on their part. Whereas up to date, I think the Crown Estate kind of sat behind all the other regulators and said. Well, as long as everyone else has done their bit, it's going to be fine. We're going to have to take the rent. What they need to do is actively manage their estate and think, hang on, we've got more than just, it's more than just getting some pounds, shillings and pence off this. We've got environmental duties and a long-term societal duties as well. Mm, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think but, probably... But just, just coming back on part of the issue with wind. Yeah. Is it is windier at sea? Yes, it is windy. And that's that, that's because it's expensive to stick stuff out there, but it's a lot windier. So you get you get yes. The, but if we're get, selling half of it, if we're selling half of it, Tom, and we're planning to sell half of it, it's crazy, isn't it? Why don't we have you know use less, 
produce it more locally, produce it on a more smaller scale. It has less of an impact both on the environment and, you know, on, on you know, well, on the environment generally and, and make it kind of, you know, local and cheaper. Well, if, if, if you can, but wherever you put a power station, it's going to have negative consequences and you get diseconomies of scale. Sure. I think probably Hinkley and, Hinkley and Sizewell will be the last mega um, power stations probably built anywhere because they're going to be producing too much power in one small place mm. with too much of a kind of consequence for the local environment to cope with and it simply is not going to work and and that I, I think that's going to be their problem when they switch these things on is that you know you're, you're doing doing too and they haven't been the, the, the French version this is based on hasn't been able to be switched on yet no. but but you know, you you can get you're still getting a form of diffuse pollution, and it is a question of whether it's lots of little you know little power stations or big ones. Um, you're, 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 there is a there's a there's a there's a balancing act to be done between these things, and I, I totally agree. You know, the easiest way of dealing with that is not to use the power in the first place. Um, mm. But but it is it it is a it is it is complexity, and you you really do get that feeling that you know we we've just relied on gas, uh, which is quite an easy thing to plumb into but we knew it was going to go and at no point has someone really sat down to try and put these things together and have a strategic mindset over this which is just terrible we've been completely driven by kind of newspaper headlines on things which are important but largely irrelevant when you when you start looking mm. long term and and, and 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 putting some proper planning in place to work out what how we can maximize all these things I think I can sum this conversation up as lack of government strategy and forward planning. Yeah. But could that not be the sum up for most conversations? Um, on a as we draw to a close, a slightly more cheerful or positive note. I mean, we have COP fifteen happening, um, and you know the biodiversity COP, and we're hopeful that some good things will come out of that. What what could listeners do on a very small scale? You know, what can planet, the Planet Pod Army do to try and support the environment particularly around the marine ecosystem or the onshore ecosystem as there's you know is it getting is it get better up to speed delving into the sorts of conversations we've been having is it taking action what would you recommend tom and joan for a for a listener to do if they were really concerned about this well firstly um let's think about all the things we use in our households um you know just before covid we all started reducing the amount of plastic we were using we seem to forgot about that during COVID, you know, the amount of masks that have been left littered on mm. um, roads, et cetera. So let's, let's think about what we can do in the house. You know, any surplus food, um, you should be composting. Um, we, we need to be thinking about how much food gets wasted. Again, that's another good way of doing things for the environment. I think the other thing that you could do is contact your MPs. Um, we're heading towards an election. It's really mm. important. It, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis. Um, so two years ago, um, you've, you know, the environment was quite high on the political agenda. Um, you know, Boris Johnson's um, as prime minister, he was fairly green, although a lot of it was rhetoric. It wasn't always in, implemented. Um, but we've, we're really in the opposite situation now. You know, it, everybody's feeling the pinch you know it's going to be a hard winter for many people and the environment will drop down that political agenda and if people literally contact their mp you can send them an email you can write to them or even better you can go to their constituency office on a saturday afternoon or a friday afternoon but just make them realize how important the environment is to us all mm, absolutely can't couldn't agree more tom 
Well, I think the, the COP promises a 30% of protection for biodiversity by 2030. Uh, and the UK government is ostensibly pushing pushing for that. So there's there's two things that come for that. Is is one, you know, you've got a rare, rare position to support whichever MP you are, you've, you've got as yours. I totally agree with, with, with Jane on the political point. You know, whichever MP you've got, Support that position so that it gets transferred into the, the sort of inevitable new government as it comes through and and and, and strengthens and, and strengthens the Conservatives they sit in, in office at the moment. Um, so there's that side, uh, and, and then there's the other side of that, which is the stuff that we've got, where we've got protective MPAs and marine protected areas and other regulation in place. Make sure that actually means protection. So so you know, if we're going to sign up to these things, then we should be actually making sure we practice what we preach. So there's a two, then, and both of that is kind of with the sea. The sea is an, a, an area which is really access to it is, is it's a pub, massive publicly owned space. So how it's used, unlike land where there's lots of private land ownership, the sea is entirely divided up by politics, whether, you know, the, the fishery is publicly owned, the, the crown estate, okay, is owned by the king on behalf of the public so that's that's publicly owned pretty much everything there is 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 defined by politics which is really unusual so it is something that that your mp can do something about um so you know make sure they do they 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 are they do support the 30 by 30 pledges that the uk government are taking forward and, and 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 make sure that also say that we want protection should mean protection Mm, absolutely and a great note to end on. Thank you so much to my guests, Tom and Joan, for shedding light on what is a really complicated and difficult issue. We do want clean energy, but we're not always aware of the costs. So it's been really helpful to have this conversation and understand just what the, the trade-offs might be for us and the decisions that we face going forward. Um, thank you to my producer and my executive producer. We're not having a conversation with um, Jim today because sadly he's not well. So catch us next time for Animal, Vegetable, Mineral. And until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you. So please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.